Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to also click the link to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where... Unlike this one, I do cover brand new movies that are out in theaters on VOD or streaming services. You can check that out at my website. That's at quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into a three-part series, a brand new one, that looks at films of the 1980s that are buddy comedies that have a CIA tie-in of some sort. Today, I'm going to be starting off the review. Last week, I did a film called Rambo 3 that featured... Afghan freedom fighters in it. This film also features Afghan freedom fighters. We're going to kick off this trilogy of CIA buddy comedies with a film that came out in 1985. It stars Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. It is called Spies Like Us. It's a film that's directed by John Landis, Donna Dixon, Steve Forrest, Bruce Davison, William Prince, Tom Hatton, Charles McKeown, Bernie Casey and Vanessa Angel are also in the film. The screenplay is written by Dan Aykroyd, along with Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel. It's a PG-rated film. It does have sexual references, comic violence, and language. This is one of those kinds of PG films, even though PG-13 did exist at the time of its release, that probably would be PG-13 today because of its language and a little bit of sexual humor in it. The runtime of Spies Like Us is an hour and 41 minutes. Now... Spies Like Us has a very Doctor Strange love-esque plot. It's about these two of the most inept and low-level U.S. intelligence agents that you could find. They end up going on a mission as expendable decoys for the real agents that are out and about. Their names are Emmett Fitzhume, played by Chevy Chase, and Austin Milbarge, played by Dan Aykroyd. They were scouted by the CIA after they ended up cheating on their advanced placement exams, and they were put on this mission that first sees them parachuting into Pakistan, and from there, the bumbling duo ends up in Afghanistan, where they're mistaken for doctors there on a humanitarian mission for the United Nations. And that's followed by run-ins with the KGB and Russians during this effort to try to draw out the identities of Soviet spies in the area so that the real American spies can complete their mission to check out this new style of Soviet missile launchers. And they end up finding out that the mission is that they're going to use this launcher to send up a Soviet missile in order to test the United States anti-missile satellite defenses, very similar to Ronald Reagan's Star Wars defense system. And that's going to be used to convince the Soviet Union that the United States has the edge in technology, and they should just give up thinking that they are going to be effective against us in a nuclear war. Now, Spice Like Us is scripted by Dan Aykroyd, He wrote this film in the early 1980s. It was originally meant to be, at that time, a comedy vehicle starring Aykroyd himself, as well as his frequent partner in comedies, John Belushi. Aykroyd wanted to make this a rehashing of the old kind of Bob Hope, Bing Crosby road films, like the Road to Rio, Road to whatever, that he had enjoyed when he was young as an homage to that Bob Hope does make an appearance in Spies Like Us. He makes a literal walk-on cameo appearance playing a round of golf through the set. The Belushi-Ackroyd pairing was proving to be as appealing as the Hope-Crosby pairing after the success of 1980's The Blues Brothers. However, 
the script would end up going into limbo because of the untimely death of John Belushi in 1982 from a drug overdose. And that pretty much put it on the shelf for a little while. Now, Ackroyd would end up proceeding to work again on the script with fellow Canadian comedian Dave Thomas during this Jamaican getaway that would help to retool the script to try to make up for Belushi's absence. For a brief period, it was thought that Dave Thomas would be the one to actually use the screenplay for his own vehicle to star in with his co-SCTV partner Rick Moranis, but he wasn't really tested enough in films to make such a highly ambitious and very expensive film bankable to produce. Dan Aykroyd had the hotter hand at the time in terms of box office appeal, especially after co-writing and co-starring in the phenomenally popular 1984 film Ghostbusters. So they decided to hone the script a little bit more by handing it to a screenwriting team with a good deal of recent success in comedies Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel. They had just scored an Oscar nomination for their script to Splash, so they were also hot at the time. And they were brought in to remove the excess in terms of the heavier emphasis on the spy element and to stick to the basics of what would end up producing laughs. And together, the screenwriters would end up mixing the original script's inept CIA agent premise with this more topical nature of American-Soviet tension, especially as it related to the potential for nuclear war. That was a big threat in the minds of many people during the early to mid-1980s. So a lot of very in-the-news stuff was put into the script during this phase. Now, as for the director, the role would end up getting filled by John Landis. Now, John Landis, obviously, if you follow films of the 1980s, he had a great track record during this period, but his reputation ended up getting blemished somewhat due to a tragic accident during the second unit filming of his segment of Twilight Zone, the movie. That resulted in the death of actor Vic Morrow and two Vietnamese child actors, There was a prolonged lawsuit that would follow that put Landis at odds with the studio, Warner Brothers, that made him initially balk at working for them again when they gave him the script to Spies Like Us. They wanted him to do this film after successful outings with Ackroyd in The Blues Brothers and Trading Places. Landis didn't really want part of it, but his lawyer ended up advising him to give it a go because for no other reason than it actually showed that Warner Brothers felt that he was actually trustworthy to be given the reins of a project, and that ruined their chances of pushing all of the blame for the deaths of Morrow and the other child actors on Landis alone. He reluctantly signed on without even reading the script, but once he did give it a look, he did feel that it was a good opportunity to get away from the heaviness of this lawsuit and what he had been through with the deaths by filming overseas, so it took him away, and he would make this supremely silly road movie completely different from the kind of movie that he had just made. Warner Brothers, as far as the casting goes, was pushing to put Ackroyd with another Saturday Night Live player named Joe Piscopo. He seemed to be red hot at the time, but it didn't quite come together. Without Piscopo and without John Belushi, Ackroyd knew he needed an established counterweight in comedy to make his film complete as a buddy comedy. So one day after running into Chevy Chase at a party and reminiscing about old times, he ended up coaxing his old co-star from Saturday Night Live to do this as a buddy film with him. It was their first collaboration since Saturday Night Live, other than Chase making a short appearance in the music video for Ghostbusters. So they ended up working together, but it wasn't all fun and games. In fact, Chevy Chase seemed to be a little bit miserable during parts of it. They had their fun working together for the most part, but Dan Aykroyd's films were actually far better known to those that they were working with while they were shooting in London. That caused Chevy Chase to become a little bit 
jealous, grouchy, overbearing. It caused some friction with director John Landis, who didn't even want Chevy Chase to be in the film, except for Aykroyd really vouched for him. Now, the bulk of the production would be done at Twickenham Studios in London, and then they would proceed to Norway for the snowy winter scenes, and then to Morocco for the segments that involved the trip to Pakistan and Afghanistan, and that was followed by additional shoots in California, in Lancaster and Palmdale, as well as some shots in Washington, D.C. The Norway scenes were well below zero temperatures. It was very, very cold. The snow was as deep as eight feet in parts of the shoot, and that made it grueling for the cast and the crew for most of that. In contrast, the Sahara Desert really cooked the cast and crew on a daily basis as well, temperatures that ran near 130 degrees Fahrenheit. This was a really tough shoot, especially for making such a light comedy. Donna Dixon, she was initially reluctant to take the role in the film. She was the wife, still is the wife of Dan Aykroyd. She didn't want special treatment for getting the part. She had similarly turned down the role that Sigourney Weaver would end up taking in Ghostbusters for the same reason. But she ended up getting convinced to audition with everyone else if she managed to earn it on her own. So she gave it a go. She got the part. Speaking of Ghostbusters, Dan Aykroyd was able to bring over for Spies Like Us the same composer in Elmer Bernstein to score with a lot of his trademark light and playful compositions. Now, in addition to the Elmer Bernstein score, there was also a hit song. The Warner Brothers ended up approaching Paul McCartney to do the title song for Spies Like Us. That initially gave Landis mixed feelings because it was quite a coup to get such a major talent to contribute a song, but by the time they had signed him on, the movie was pretty much finished at the time. He didn't want to re-edit the opening of the film to accommodate this new song, so a lot of back and forth was in play. John Landis and Warner Brothers ended up coming to a compromise that the song would end up playing during the closing credits instead of the opening credits, so long as he was able to continue to show images on the screen when the song started playing so that it would keep people in the seats to be able to listen to the song. Uh, Paul McCartney worked on this during the period he was making his album called Press to Play. It does not appear on that album, but it does appear as a bonus track on CDs that were issued later. He performed all of the instruments on the track except for the synthesizer, which was done by Eddie Rayner from the group Split Ends, and also the backing vocals. The track would end up shooting to number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in the United States, and the music video ended up featuring McCartney along with the stars of Spies Like Us, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, but it's not a song that was embraced by McCartney in his discography. He mostly has distanced himself from playing the song in his concerts, despite it being his final top 10 hit in the United States. Cameo appearances galore are also what the film is known for. If you follow John Landis's films, this is very much indicative of the kind of comedies he makes. B.B. King gets a part. John Landis happened to be working on a documentary short at the time with a blues man called B.B. King Into the Night. And that was a collection of music videos that John Landis directed meant to promote B.B. King's next album of the same name. In addition to Bob Hope, you had Frank Oz, Terry Gilliam, Ray Harryhausen, Joel Cohen, Sam Raimi, Martin Brest, Costa Gravas, Michael Apted, Larry Cohen, Edwin Newman, Bob Swaim, and a few others are in the film as well. So if you know your directors and what they look like, you'll get a kick out of seeing them on the screen. Now, as far as the finished product goes, Spies Like Us can be a bit of a mixed bag. Its enjoyment is certainly going to depend on the viewer's expectations and your state of mind at the time of viewing it. Although it isn't a kid's film in any way, I think that younger viewers and those who just enjoy silly shenanigans are going to find the slapstick humor and slapdash zaniness to be amusing for 
how far that the actors are willing to go to get a laugh. I saw this when I was 15 years old in the theater, and I thought it was actually very funny at the time. It hit me at the right time, at the right stage in my life. Since then, I haven't been as enamored of it as I was back then, but I still enjoy watching it. I think if you view it with an objective eye, a critical eye, the Three Stooges level style of mugging, the lowbrow humor, it's a bit antiquated, even for the time it was released in the mid-1980s. And given that it's meant to be a throwback, though, to the Hope and Crosby era of films, and the fact that both Chase and Ackroyd would do even more inane comedies down the road, I think that you kind of give Spies Like Us a pass if you're a big fan of either of the two lead stars, certainly. Once the film was completed, test audiences mostly complained about the intended ending that would result in World War III erupting due to the botched mission that essentially caused the end of the world, you presume. Revisions would end up having to be made so that such a downbeat ending to an otherwise light and goofy film could be avoided. Nevertheless, the threat of nuclear annihilation, whether it was carried out or not, it's still a bit of a heavy way to throw that in at the end of the film, and that kind of undercuts the tone of this childish absurdity that would threaten to leave audiences walking out a bit deflated, so they ended up tacking on an additional ending after this make-love-not-war diversion. They were able to add an extra scene of epilogue where nuclear wars end up getting played out on board games instead of in real-world scenarios, and that snapped the tone back to its tongue-in-cheek vibe that it would achieve in its best moments, and audiences ended up liking it, even if critics were not exactly enamored of the film. Despite a rather large budget for a comedy, it was reportedly $22 million in budget. Spies Like Us would end up being a actually a pretty big hit in 1985. It spent two entire months in the top 10 films in the United States. It racked up during that time a hefty $60 million off of that $22 million budget, and that placed it at the end of the year as the 10th highest grossing film of 1985, just a million dollars behind The Goonies, which was also considered a pretty big hit for the time. Despite its comedic star appeal, Spies Like Us, it really has not gone down to be considered a classic 1980s comedy like so many others of its era, although it is generally liked by audiences as a diversion more so than as a comedy that they might fully embrace, but it will probably score a stroke better for juvenile viewers. Many kids today may not have the kind of love for the original Saturday Night Live stars that those like me who were teens in the 1980s had, so the appeal may be limited for garnering new fans, but if you're a fan of the films of the 1980s and you love the original cast of Saturday Night Live especially, you probably will get a kick out of it. Some of the humor in regards to women as objects, maybe that hasn't aged as well. Certainly you can look at it through that prism and see a little bit of the problems there, but it is breezy. It does deliver a handful of funny moments. I think that's enough to recommend. Anyone expecting Dan Aykroyd to continue his comedic momentum going in as a screenwriter, you may be disappointed that the funniest moments in Spies Like Us would be comparable to the least funny moments in Ghostbusters, but nevertheless, I think that there are enough laughs, and it's definitely diverting enough in its plot and in its many locales and many cameos and all of that stuff to be able to be considered a worthwhile viewing for people who just like escapist comedy entertainment. So for that, I'm going to give it, it's a marginal score, but I'm going to give it three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do recommend it for people who like this kind of movie. If you're a huge fan of Ackroyd and Chase, you'll get the most mileage out of it. If you like your slapstick comedies, especially throwbacks to the Bob Hope and Bing Crosby era of comedies, you'll get 
some mileage out of that as well. Beyond that, it's not one I would consider going well out of your way to see. But if it happens to be on somewhere, or you see it streaming, and you just want a few laughs without a lot of high overhead, I think that Spies Like Us will fit the bill for that. So three stars is what I will give Spies Like Us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on Spies Like Us, you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. .net, where you'll find links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, as well as my Instagram. You can also contact me in any of those places as well. As far as what I'm going to be reviewing on the next episode, continuing on with the theme of CIA buddy comedies, this one I think only has one out of the two being a CIA agent. It is from 1987. It stars Jim Belushi. Speaking of John Belushi, his brother, Jim, in a film starring along with John Ritter, It's a 1987 action comedy called Real Men, and that will be on the very next episode. Check out Real Men if you want to keep along with the reviews as they come out. And until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. 